Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Let's bow our heads as we seek the Lord in prayer. Our Father God, indeed, Hosanna in the highest to you. You are worthy of praise. We thank you for your word. And this morning as we open it, we pray that you will give us your spirit to help us understand and apply it to our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. uh, If you reach inside your bulletins, you'll find a study guide. And I invite you to take that out. As usual, uh, the words that are um, in the blanks in your study guide will be underlined on the screen. Will be underlined on the screen. You notice the title of the message, The Shaking. Let me see by a, a show of hands how many of you have heard or know what The Shaking is. Okay, there's a good number of you. This is a, um, a message, really, that many people, especially if you're new in Adventism, have may not heard. Certainly, I'm willing to, uh, uh, to say with confidence that uh, this is not a message that we hear a lot about from the pulpits these days, and yet it is a distinctive Adventist message. And it is an, a distinctive Adventist message because it is biblical. And it is talked about extensively in the spirit of prophecy. And I suppose the reason that it may not, uh, maybe some people have not heard about it is because um, it's a topic, it's a message that quite frankly can step on people's toes. And nobody likes to be stepped on, right? And so as, as I share this message with you today, I would ask you to pray for me as I, as I preach it. But pray for yourselves, because I believe this is something important that God wants us to hear. Amen? Amen. So let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, we'll start in chapter 3. We'll we'll stay in Matthew today. Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. Now, uh, Matthew, after describing the birth of Jesus, after describing all the the events surrounding his birth and and how he ends in, in Nazareth, uh, Matthew now presents, he switches to John the Baptist, and, and how John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness, and this was the message that John the Baptist was proclaiming. Notice Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was, in essence, the, 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 the bulk of his message, the, the foundation of his message, the kingdom of heaven has come. And Matthew goes on to describe John the Baptist and and, and, and mentions that everybody, a lot of people came from all over to hear John speak. And among those who came to hear John speak were the Pharisees. And as we know, the Pharisees had their own agenda. And so in verses 7 through 10, John says of the Pharisees, notice, brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axis lay to the roots of the trees. 
Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice, I want you to think about that, what the last statement he makes there about the Pharisees. Every tree which does not bear good fruit, what happens to it? It's cut down and thrown where? Into the fire. And then he quickly goes on to, you know, switches to, to, to talk about Jesus, uh, the one that would come after him whose sandals he was not worthy to carry. And this is what he said about Jesus in verses 11 and 12. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing hand is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn the, up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's no accident, uh, you know, again, what he says in, in verse 10 about those who do not bear good fruit, what would happen to them. And now he describes Jesus as one who will burn up the chaff, the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, it is verse 12 here that is really foundational to what we're talking about this morning. Jesus is said to have a winnowing fan, and with this winnowing fan, he does the work of cleansing in which he separates what? The weight from the chaff. There is a separation that is needed, and Jesus is the one who does it, and he has a winnowing hand, and with it he does that work of cleansing. Now, if you're, if you're a, not a farmer, you may not understand all this. Us, you know, 2021 modern folk, you know, we get our produce at Walmart. But, you know, the farmers, you know, if you're a farmer, you may know. The people in John's time, as they're hearing him speak, they know what he's talking about because they were an agrarian society. So they were farmers. They understand. But because many of us are not farmers, maybe we need to go a little bit and do a quick review about this harvest process to see how this works. And it's important that we understand because that will help us understand the work of Jesus in separating the wheat and the chaff. So the first step in the process is the threshing. You see uh, there on the screen a gentleman with uh, his fork, and he is threshing. Uh, and threshing is the process of removing the grain of wheat or barley from the, hot, uh, the, the, the stalk and the husk. That's the first thing you need to do. You got to remove it. You got to separate the grain from the stalk and the husk. Now, the threshing was done in different ways depending on what grain you were working with and what tools you had uh, available to you. But essential to the threshing was the threshing floor. You see an image there on the screen. Uh, the threshing floor, it was a, a flat area of hard dirt or rock in which the, the, the freshly harvested wheat could be piled up. So that's where it happened. It was piled up there, and then they threshed it. And, and notice that, that uh, uh, John, Matthew mentions there in verse 12 uh, about Jesus has his winnowing hand on his hand, and he thoroughly will clean out the threshing floor. So this is what the threshing floor looked like. This is what, the, uh, uh, what, what they did there. Now, winnowing. Jesus has a winnowing fan in his hand. So what is winnowing? Well, winnowing is the process that separated the mixed-up pile of grain, stalk, and husk so that the edible grain could be sifted and eaten. So notice they, they, the, the farmer would thresh the, floor, the, the, the grain you know, to separate the grain from the husk and the stalk, and then whatever fell on the ground that also had to be uh, sort of separated so that the, eventually you would have the grain to eat it. Now, to winnow the grain, the farmer 
scooped up the pieces of the crop he had just threshed, and he threw it up in the air. Now the wind blew the light pieces of the stalk, and the grain, which was heavier and roundish, would fall straight to the ground. Now, over time, as they continued doing this work on the threshing floor, the threshing floor was covered with three quite distinct piles of material. You had the the kernels of the grain that almost fell straight to the ground, or if they were blown, they were just blown not far off. Then you had the larger pieces of the stock, which was also called a straw, and they were blown off a little ways further. And then you had the smaller pieces of the stock, which was called a chaff. And the chaff, because it was lighter, that was pushed by the wind even farther away. The farmer would use a winnowing fork to accomplish this task, to throw the thresh grain into the air. But now, after the winnowing, the valuable grain was gathered up and stored, and then they gathered the chaff and the stalk, and that was disposed of. And as we saw, uh, read earlier, it was really burned up. This is what happened to it. But now... Just before the grain was converted into flour, it was sieved, the sieving of the grain. Now, sieving was necessary. You see how how that took place, uh, a picture there. The the sieving was necessary for, for a couple of reasons. For one, it was common in the harvesting that the, the seeds of the weed got mixed up with the seeds of the grain, and the threshing did not take care of that. And so that's why that the sieving was necessary because it had to separate the, the good seeds, the seeds of the, of the weeds from the, the seeds of the wheat. And then, of course, in picking up the grain, in picking up the grain uh, of, the, of the threshing floor, dust and pebbles were mixed up with the grain. So because of this, this sieving was necessary before the grain could be converted into flour and you could make bread and whatever and, and you could eat it. So, so, God uses this illustration of the harvesting, this this process of harvesting to illustrate what he, how he would deal with his people. In particular, how he would deal with them in regards to the area of judgment. Everybody is going to be judged. That, That should not be a surprise to any of you. And so God uses this process of the, uh, of the uh, uh, harvesting as an object illustration for us to understand how he's going to achieve this, this judgment process. Notice what we read in Amos chapter 9, verse 9. It's an example. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. So he's telling us, you know, right there, he's talking about his people, and, and, and he's saying that he will sieve them as grain. So this is what he's talking about here. Now, let me emphasize one important thing. This work of winnowing, of, of sieving, is done by Jesus. I should have heard it, amen, because if, if I told you that that work was done by me, you should be nervous. Because I am going to mess it up. If that work was done by you, you should be nervous because you're going to mess it up. We thank God that it is Jesus who does this work. Because he can see the end from the beginning. And it's important to understand that it is Jesus who does this work. Because now we're going to look at this parable that sort of 
you know, breaks this shaking per, uh, 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 topic down, which is the parable of the wheat and the tares. You've heard of the parable of the wheat and the tares before. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 13. So we'll go to chapter 13 now of Matthew. And you'll uh, read that in verses 24 through 30. You can use your Bibles, but you also see it on the screen. Matthew chapter 13 and verses 24 to 30. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. The parable of the wheat and the tares. Notice the Bible says another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us to then go and gather them up? But he said, no. Lest while you gather up the tares and also, uh, you also gather up the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at the, at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, Jesus goes on to explain here in a little bit this parable of the wheat and the tares. But for us to understand the parable of the wheat and the tares, I want to mention the parable that comes before it. And it's the parable of the sower. In fact, Matthew 13 starts with the, the parable of the sower. Now, you're familiar with the parable of the sower because you remember the sower was, was spreading seeds everywhere and it, the seeds fell on four different kinds of soil. You remember that, right? And, and, and depending on what soil the seed uh, uh, you know, fell on, you either had a fruit or, uh, or not. And so, so uh, you know, we could preach an entire sermon on, on the parable of the sower. I'm not going to do that, but I, I will explain it to you because it's very important, the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower. In a nutshell, the parable of the sower provides a vivid illustration of the fact that the kingdom of heaven, notice what is the kingdom of heaven according to the parable? It's the church includes those who only give lip service to the king as well as those who are genuine disciples. So Jesus is saying in this parable of the sower that the church has two kinds of people in it. You have those who are genuine disciples, Henry, those who are committed Christians, those who love Jesus, and then you have those who are there, but they're really not there. They are there, but they're really only, it's only a facade. They give lip service. They're not genuine Christians. This is not what Pastor Nelson is saying. Jesus is saying this as a result in, in the parable. He explains it. He has a church. He has a kingdom, but there's two kinds of people in his kingdom. That's just what he says. Now, the first three soils, because remember, there's four soils in this parable of the sower. The first three soils typify the kingdom in its widest circle. That is the outward profession. The fourth soil represents the kingdom in its smaller circle, those who truly are converted and committed. Again, when you read the parable of the soil, you know how it is, right? The majority of the seed falls on bad soil. Right. Sometimes the plant started to grow, but because of the heat, because of whatever, it just died. It was only one seed that fell on the good soil and it grew up and gave fruit. 
I want you to think about what that means. Because if the kingdom of heaven is the church, that tells me that the majority of the people in the church fall into this category. That the minority would be those who are truly disciples and actually give fruit. This is not what, I want you to pay attention to this. This is not what I'm saying. This is what Jesus is saying in the parable. This is deep stuff, friends. The minority. And, and, and we'll comment on that here in a, in a little bit. And so now, the parable of the wheat and the tares also sets the kingdom of God in two aspects. You have the wheat, which are the true believers, and you have the tares, which are those that are, give lip service, the outward professors. The same thing. There's only two. There's only two kinds of people in God's church. So notice in verse 26, you notice that the, um, the, 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 the farmers, basically the ones that were uh, helping the owner, they noticed that there was tares. You know, they didn't plant any. You know, they, they, they're looking around and they see there, hold on, there's tares there. There's weed. Everybody's familiar with weeds, right? That's what we're talking about, the weeds. If you have a garden, if you have, if you have, you know, if you have a, a plot of land behind your house, you know that there's weeds. And, and it's, it's just so annoying, aren't they? But, you know, for the most part, although they are annoying, weeds are relatively harmless. How many of you have taken out weeds? You know, it's not, a, it's not difficult, right? In fact, they, they actually sell instruments on, in, in Home Depot that are specific, actually help you get the weeds out. Or if you don't have it, you just get on your knees and you just take them out. It's not a difficult task, is it, Henry? Not, not, not really. Not really. Nobody really likes to do it, especially in the summer. But, you know, it's not hard to do. But when, when Jesus uh, is saying this parable, he's talking about the people in his time in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the most common weed or tear is, was called the bearded darnel. You see there on the left. This is called the bearded darnel. This was a poisonous grass that was almost indistinguishable from the wheat while the two are growing. So you see the both hand, side by side. The wheat on the right, the tares or the darnel on the left. As they're growing, they're almost alike. So it's hard to understand, to pick out one without the other. This can be very dangerous because, again, the darnel is poisonous. It's poisonous. If not handled properly, it can harm you. And so when the servants uh, uh, point this out to the owner, hey, hey listen, there's, there's, there's weeds in here. These, these poisonous darnels have grown. Well, the owner immediately recognizes that it was an enemy who did this, but he doesn't want the servants to do anything about it yet. Don't do anything about it right away. He says, wait for when? Wait for the harvest. Wait for the harvest because it is in the harvest when it is easier for us to distinguish the real from the fake. Now, in nature, in nature, the roots of the grain, the wheat, are so interwined with the darnels that it is virtually impossible to pull up one without pulling up the other. And so the owner, of course, he's an experienced farmer. He understands that. His helpers, well, they they don't have much experience. You know, we'll we'll take care of it, sir. No, 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 don't do it. Because number one, you're not going to be able to tell which is wheat, which is which, because they 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 look alike. Second, because the roots are so interwined, if you pull out one, you're going to pull out the other. Don't do it yet. 
Wait till the harvest. It is then when you'll be able to see which is one or the other. Now later on, Jesus goes on to explain this parable, and he tells us what these, each, each thing means. Notice in verse 38, the field resents what? The world. We see that in verse 38, the world. The good seed represents the righteous, the sons of the kingdom. And during his public ministry, Jesus sowed the world uh, uh, with disciples, with true disciples who went about you know, proclaiming the gospel. They were loyal to the kingdom. So if, if, if the good seed are, are the sons of the kingdom, what are the tares? The children of the wicked one. The sons of the wicked one, according to verse 38. Now think about it. Satan, as some of you know, he has a counterfeit for every divine reality. There's that, there's that unwritten rule, if you will, that, that says that for every truth that God has, Satan has a counterfeit. And a counterfeit, for it to work, it must be almost identical to the real thing. And so notice what it says here. Uh, um, Satan, he sows the world with those who look like, talk like, and to some extent even walk like disciples. They're almost, they, they, they're so much like disciples, you can't tell. You can't tell, but these are, these are the ones that, for lack of a better word, are, are working for Satan. And of course, the enemy, we know the enemy is Satan, it is the devil, according to verse 39. The owner says, wait till the harvest. What is the harvest? The end, right? The end of the age, the second coming of Jesus. We see it there in Revelation chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. It says, And another angel came out out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for, for you to reap, for the harvest on the earth is ripe. For he who sat on the cloud thrust, uh, so he who sat on the, on the cloud thrust in his sickle, on the earth and the earth was reaped. So here in Revelation, we see he's using the same wording of, of, of the harvest. Now, this, describing the second coming of Jesus. And who are the reapers? The angels are the reapers. The angels are the reapers. Matthew 24, 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from, uh, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so, clearly then, according to the parable, it isn't until the second coming of Jesus where the difference between the true and the counterfeit will be clearly seen. That makes sense? It isn't until the end. But now, some people mistakenly, because of what, what, what the parable says, some people mistakenly feel that, well, since we won't know the truth from the fake until the end, it's probably not a good idea for us to do what is called in the church biblical discipline. You know, when, when, when there's um, ungodly people in the church that, are, that have turned their backs on God, that they're doing ungodly things, there is such a thing as biblical discipline. How many of you know that there's biblical discipline? It shouldn't be a surprise to you because it is biblical. 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 5 and Matthew 18 uh, uh, commands us to put out of fellowship those who don't accept God's correction and are guilty of certain forms of wickedness. Now, of course, we d that is done not as a punitive action, but as, as a the redemptive one. This is why we, we deal with biblical discipline, to redeem them so that they can come back to the Lord. 
But just because we, we don't, the, this, the, 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 the shaking, this, the, this difference between the fake and the true will not be known until the end, that doesn't mean that we don't take measures in the church to, to deal with sin in the church. Okay? It also does not mean, as we'll see here in a minute, that this work of shaking, of, shift, of sifting, it, that it doesn't start until the end. We'll see, we'll see here in a minute when does it really start. And so the sifting, the, the shaking of the church, again, it may not mean a lot to some of you who've been maybe uh, uh, are relatively new in Adventism, but it is a, a biblical message. And, but, but those of you who have been around the block, so to speak, when you think about the shaking of the church, let's be honest, it may make you a bit nervous, a bit apprehensive. The, 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 the church is going to be sifted. The, the church is going to be shaken. There's, there's that bit of uncertainty. What's going to happen to me? So what is the shaking? What is the shaking? What is the purpose of the shaking? When will it happen? Why will it happen? And what should be our attitude about it? That's what we need to answer. Well, in a nutshell, the, the, the shifting, or the sifting rather, or the shaking is the process whereby the special is separated from the common. It is the biblical, in the biblical sense, it applied to God's people as we saw in Amos 9.9. Important that we understand that. This is the process by which the wheat is separated from the tares. This is the process by which the true converted disciples are separated from those who only give lip service. And it is something that happens in the church, in God's people. This is not something that happens for those that don't want anything to do with God and are out there. This is something that happens here. You understand that? Again, Amos 9, 9, for surely I will command, I will and sift the house of Israel among the nations as grain is sifted in the sea. We are the spiritual Israel today. We are the spiritual Israel. And so why is the sifting or the shaking of the church necessary? Why is it necessary? Well, I will let Mrs. White explain it because she can explain it better than I. This is from Last Day Events, page 173. The Lord is soon to come. There must be a refining, winnowing process in some churches. Is that what it says? There must be a refining, winnowing process in every church. Why? For there are among us wicked men who do not love the truth or honor God. Mm-mm. In every church. Why? Because there's people, not just men. All right, this is a general, this is the word is used generalized, right? Men and women, people who really don't love God or honor him. That's why the, pro- the, the shaking must be done. Because as we saw in the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and tares, there's two kinds of people in his church. True disciples and fake ones that look almost like the true ones. This is why it's necessary. Yet I will say to you, it is a sad thing when, when people leave the church. This is a sad thing. Now, uh, let me clarify. When I say, when I talk about people that leave the church, I'm not talking about people who, for whatever reasons, decided, I don't want to come to this congregation anymore. I'll just go to another one. All right? Unfortunately, this is what we've been seeing happening, part of the remnants of COVID and 2020. This has been, it's happened here, and it's happening in every church. 
We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who, who consciously turned their backs on God and his people and don't want to have anything to do with God anymore, even though they were among us. They might have been leaders among us. Friends, they might have been preaching from the podium. You know, I've seen it happen. People that leave. That's what we're talking about here. It's sad when that happens. It's sad when, when we see dissident movements that rise up and cause division in the church that lead people to want to leave the church. And of course, when that happens, we need to do everything and anything possible to reach out to them, to love them, to meet their needs so that if they, if they have left the church, they would want to come back. And if they haven't or they're thinking about it, they will change their minds. We need to do everything we can. But make no mistake, some people will leave regardless of what you do. And when they do, they will show their true character. That's just a fact, friends. That's just a fact. And so notice the shaking, or this uh, sifting of the church, is part of the final events predicted in the Bible, and it is necessary for it to happen. We are people of the word, right? We, we uh, Seventh-day Adventists, want and understand and love prophecy. Because prophecy tells us what to expect. The shaking is prophetic. This is something that will happen. And notice, it is necessary for it to happen. It needs to happen. And we'll see here in a little bit why. It needs to happen. In the, in, the, in the first volume of Testimonies, page 608, notice what Mrs. White said here. In the last vision given to me, I was shown the startling fact that but a small portion of those who now profess the truth will be sanctified by it and be saved. I don't know about you, but when I read this, when, when, I, when I read this passage as I was preparing for this topic, that was a blow to the gut. It still is a blow to the gut. Because I mentioned earlier in the parable of sower that clearly the minority are the ones that the seed falls upon good, good, good soil and, and springs up and gives harvest. That means that the majority doesn't. And she emphasizes this again. She says that, again, only a small portion of those who now profess the truth that we hold so dear will actually be sanctified and saved by it. This is deep. And again, because of what Jesus says in Matthew 13 about the separation of the wheat and the tares, about waiting until the harvest, some people feel that this is not something we need to worry about now, that this is only something future that will not happen all the way until the end. But, notice, again, back to last day events, page 173, notice what she says. We are in the shaken time. The time when everything that, must, that can be shaken will be shaken. She wrote this over 100 years ago. And then, she's telling the church back then, we are in a shaking time. So if that was true 100 years ago, it, it's true today, isn't it? We are in a shaking time right now. Now, it could be argued that, that while we are in a shaking time, perhaps the, the shaking maybe occurs in a smaller scale. 
And so while the shaking is, is something that is happening right now, it, it is also a future event. Notice what she continues saying. The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. So notice, he's talking about a time that existed. Those who have, uh, who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it hard, hard thing or had matter to yield to the powers that be rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threaten imprisonment and death. The contest is between what? The commandments of God and the commandments of men. In this, the gold will be separated from the dross of the church. The gold will be separated. She talks about a, 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 a time far distant, not far distant, so it's still in the future. Now, friends, if you allow me, I, 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 I feel like I need to take a detour here right now. And I'm going to take a detour because I think it's, impo it's important that I address something that maybe some of you are asking already. Let me go back to the, the previous slide. Those, she says, those who have step-by-step step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it hard, a hard matter to yield to the powers that be. Right now, friends, there are people even among us right now that are struggling. And I'll tell you why. Let's talk about something relevant, because it's in your minds, and I, I know it's in your minds. Vaccines. Let's talk about that for a second here. There are people among us that are struggling over this. Struggling why? Struggling over the decision whether I do take a vaccine or not. Now, I understand that there's obviously different opinions about this. Right now, right here, there are some of you who have taken the vaccine and, and, and well, maybe thinking, why is this such a problem? We're in a, in a pandemic. It's a no-brainer. Take the vaccine. But not everybody feels that way. And, and friends, as, as I've talked to some of you, because I've talked, the reason I bring this up is because I've talked to some of you, because I know this is something that you're thinking and you're struggling with, at least some of you are. This isn't political anymore. It isn't. For some among our church, probably right in this congregation, right near that you're sitting here and next to your neighbor, for some, this issue has to do with what I just read. For some, whether you agree with it or not, for some, this has to do with uh, uh, yielding to worldly demands and conforming to worldly customs that will not find, you know, it won't be hard for you to yield to the powers that be. For some, this is the issue. This is a reality, friends. And you may disagree with it. You may agree with it. The point is, people are struggling over this decision. And they ask me, Pastor, what should I do? I don't have all the answers. You, you probably know that by now. Now, I have my own opinion. And I will say to you that if you believe this is a moral issue, 
If you believe that by you taking or not taking the vaccine, you are violating a, a, a principle of the Bible and the commandments of God, then you need to follow your conscience. Nobody should tell you what to do or not to do if you believe that by doing this or not doing it, you're violating a, a commandment of God. Because that's the testing truth. If you look at I, I, she continues saying in the next one, rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threaten, imprisonment, or death, the contest is between what? The commandments of God and the commandments of men. The issue should be, do I, am I violating the commandments of God if I take the vaccine or if I not take the vaccine? That's what you should be thinking. Now, some of you made the decision, and, 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 and it may be logical, but again, this is not true for everybody. Now, I will give you my opinion, but it's just my opinion. This is not, because you, you already know that the Seventh-day Adventist Church doesn't have a stance on vaccines. You, it, this is up to you. This is not against our religion at all. I will give you my opinion. In my case, this is a practical issue. It's not a moral one. It isn't. I don't see this as violating the commandments of God. But this is Nelson Mercado. You may not agree with that. And if you believe it is, then you need to follow your conscience. That's how you should make this decision, friends. This is the way you should address it. Now, I, I will say that it may come a time when you may not be able to do anything about it because it's beyond, you know, it's out of your hands. And when the time comes, you may have to cross that bridge and, and bear that cross, and hopefully God will open the door for you. But please, if you're making a decision, it should be about, am I being faithful to God or not? That should be the testing truth. Amen? Amen. Let's go back. I, I digress now. Because what Mrs. White is saying here is that this shaking process has started. She's already, it started in her days, and it is something that has been happening, but it is also a future event. I would say the future of uh, uh, shaking will occur in a, greater, in a greater way. And again, let's face it, when people leave the church, this shaking process is going to be a painful one. There's no question about it. It's going to be painful. I, I can tell you from my own experience that, that understanding, and Mrs. White has said already that the shaking has already started. I've experienced the pain of the shaking. People that I've studied with, people that I've baptized, that no longer work with Jesus, and they're no longer with us. It's painful. It will be painful. And maybe you ask, well, if it's painful, why would God allow the pain of the shaking. Why would he allow this? Well, it's interesting. A new study found that the cells in the body actually respond to pain. Notice what, it, what the, uh, the, the study set, uh, found. Regardless of the extent, the accompanying pain is perhaps the worst part of any cut, bruise, or wound type. Yet despite our reluctance to experience this, nat this natural sensation, Pain can actually be a good thing. Imagine that. Pain can be a good thing. Yeah. For one, it shows us where the injury is located, the overall intensity, and even just what kind of wound care regimen may require. And so you may, you know, pain can be a, a, a good thing. You've probably heard of, of, of diabetics, for example, who have neuropathy, and they lose, you know, sensation in their lower extremities. And if they're walking and they, they don't feel anything, they get an injury, they don't know about it. And, you know, they get an infection, and, you know, before you know it, 
They need to, you know, cut their, their foot or their leg. So pain can be a good thing. However, pain may also have a different use entirely. Notice, according to a new study published by the British Journal of Pharmacology, pain may actually help improve our body's natural wound healing capabilities. Pain can improve your healing capabilities. And so the question, why would God allow the pain of the shaking? Well, simple, friends. The shaking will make the church healthier and stronger. That's why. That's why this must happen. It will happen. It's, it's prophetic. It needs to happen. Why? Because the church needs to be, it needs to be made healthier and stronger. But now, you may be wondering, what kinds of things... What kinds of things can we look for that may be the catalyst to the shaking? What can we look for that, that we understand that this is leading to this greater shaking that uh, Mrs. White talked about? Well, there's at least four phases, four phases that will lead to this shaking. And I'm going to leave you with a teaser because I'm not going to talk about that today. There are these four phases of things that, that we need to look for that will lead to this shaking. And we'll talk about this in our second part of this message, which will be not next Sabbath, but the following, because I won't be here next Sabbath. So two Sabbaths from today, we will talk about the shaking part two. We'll look at these four phases of things that we ought to look for that we will lead to the shaking. But now as I look around you, as I look around the faces of everybody here, I can see that this is a grim and hard topic. I can see that this is a hard pill to swallow. And some may be asking, what about me? Pastor, if, if what you're saying is true, if, if what, what, what I read in these parables are telling me, will I be shaken out? Think about it. If only the minority of people, according to the parable, are those that are truly consecrated, will I, am I going to be the ones who are shaken out? This is a concern that we all have. Maybe you have it right now. But I will tell you, you know, there's been a method to my madness. Because over the last number of months this year, we've talked about the certainty of salvation. The, the certainty of assurance, you remember. We talked about running the race, means, meaning that we can be sure of our salvation, not because of anything that I've done, or not because of anything that I am doing, but because of everything that he's done and he is doing. That's why we can be sure of our salvation. And yet, that does not preclude the fact that we have a responsibility. And as we run the race of Christianity, we must remember that we need to stay connected to the vine. You see, this is a reality. This is truth. It's truth because as the Bible says it's true, we need to expect it. But you don't need to worry if you're holding on to Jesus. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say just hold his hand. I would say grab him and hold on tight. Because that is the only way we can be sure. So don't leave here with saying, well, this was the shaking. I don't know if I'm going to be among them. Don't worry about it. You just hold on to Jesus. And if you hold on to Jesus, you don't have to worry about the shaking. The problem is that not everybody's holding on to Jesus. The problem is that people are being sidetracked and distracted by so many other things, and they're giving way and yielding when you should be just holding on and surrendering to Christ. So today, as we end this topic, we still have the, the, the second part of it. My, my word that I want to lead you with, with is hold on to Christ. 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim as, uh, in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.